The Estrella Trilogy, written and read by Seymour Hamilton. Book One, The Voyage South. Chapter Twelve, in which they are ambushed, and Estrella is falsely accused. The next day they walked the road southwards, Estrella, Gar, and Lindy at the horse's head. Eva, whose shoes were still too wet to wear, drove the wagon. As the morning went on, Estrella found himself talking more freely to Gar. Lindy dropped a few paces behind them, a floppy cloth cap covering her hair and shadowing her face. If he had been asked, Estrella would have said that he knew Lindy could hear everything he said, but at the time her silent presence just over his shoulder neither encouraged nor inhibited him, even when he tried to explain his relationship to Eva. She, um, wants to be a healer. Always has, she says. But you're to be the Teen Mouth Scholar, you said yesterday. Yes, but it's not like that. I didn't steal it from her. Nobody wanted her to go except maybe her mother. She's the one who patched me up when I was— Go on. When Yan hit me in the head and left me behind, and the Molly sailed without me. He stopped talking, and for many paces there was only the clop of hooves and the rumble of the cart. Then, slowly, with many long pauses, and often out of order, Estrella told Gar about the journey south. The previous day he had set out some of the facts. This time he let himself talk about his surprise and delight at being chosen by Roaring Jack, about the excitement of the journey south and the adventure of the storm. Estrella was aware that Gar and Lindy behind them was listening intently to his attempt to evoke a series of pictures in their minds. The skipper bent over the tiller, a glimpse of stars through the wind-driven clouds, the spreading trees at Teenmouth, the moment when he chose the passage through the breakers. When he finally reached the point when the molly had abandoned him, his words trailed off and he walked in silence. Gar had let Estrella talk, but when distress halted the story, Gar searched for a way to restart the flow. "'You uh, never knew your father, then?' he asked. Estrella nodded. He nearly complained about how his mother had always wanted to keep him safe ashore, but as he thought of her he understood a little better how much she feared lest he be lost at sea like his father before him, and he wished that his realization had come when he could have shared it with her. "'All I know about him is some writing in a little book, a knife,' Astrea remembered Scar's warning in time to avoid mentioning the bracelet. "'He left you his name,' said Carr. "'Yes, the name of a stranger. And muddy green eyes and a head of black curly hair that's not like anyone I ever met.' "'Well, it's better than having white hair, you know,' said Gar lightly. Estrella grinned, and suddenly the future seemed more important than the past. "'I'd like to think I'm walking down this road because I chose to do it myself,' he said. Gar glanced at him before replying. "'Because I'm such a clever person, I guess that this particular red-earth track we're on is not really all that you mean, and I won't insult you by asking silly questions such as whether anyone really chooses anything, because... I know you don't need a whole pile of logic-chopping words. You want to feel that you're the one who's making up your life story as you go along, and what's more, that you're the hero of it. 
Something like that, said Estrella. Good, said Gar firmly. Stay with the feeling. It's the wanting that counts. Estrella looked at Gar, who strode down the road with a slight roll to his walk, as if he challenged it to bring him anything with which he could not deal. He glanced over his shoulder to see Lindy at the horse's head, her easy stride conveying much the same confidence. She smiled at him, and the rhythm of Estrella's walk subtly changed. He was briefly aware of Eva behind the three of them, the reins in one hand, the other tugging at her braids, looking as if she were frustrated that she could not overhear what they said, or perhaps angry at all three of them for excluding her. Putting Eva and her moods aside, Estrella concentrated on the landscape through which they were travelling. The road now ran almost due south, through mixed forest, increasingly marked by human activity. Estrella saw stumps among the undergrowth, and from working with Jeb's horse Sally, he knew that the gouges in the earth were from logs skidded down to the road. Occasionally lesser tracks and trails joined them. Gradually the green centre strip of grass faded into the earth that had been packed hard by the passing of many wheels and horses' hooves. Tree branches no longer met overhead, and the sun beat down so strongly that he wished for clouds. Estrella undid a couple of buttons on his shirt, and was about to roll up his sleeves until he remembered his bracelet. Biting flies pested all of them. Nora jingled her harness and swished her tail. When they stopped under a big tree for their midday meal, they were all hot, and what wind there was only raised dust in their faces. Walking was tiring, but at least it drew them nearer their goal, so they did not slacken their pace during the afternoon. As the shadows began to lengthen, the road bent westward almost imperceptibly, but enough that it was not possible to see very far ahead. Every few miles there were spaces among mature trees where aspens and scrubby bushes had invaded long-abandoned fields. As they reached the end of just such a break in the forest, where the sun-baked road was particularly dusty, the road curved towards a little bridge. Something that was not wind stirred the bushes near the stream. Gar's stride slowed, and he glanced back to Lindy and Eva. "'Well, let's all lie down in the shade of those big trees up ahead and play chucklebelly, folks. This old man could do with a little rest.' It was clear from his tone that he did not mean what he said. Eva's head jerked up, and Lindy changed her grip on her staff. Beside Estrella, Gar tucked in the right side of his loose shirt, revealing a knife in a sheath on his belt. A moment later four young men emerged from the ditch just ahead of the bridge, knives in their hands. Estrella saw them run towards him, their loose brown shirts flapping around their bodies, dust kicking up behind them, sun glinting on their knives. In the same instant as he was imprinting the scene on his memory, it seemed to him that the men slowed as they neared him, the first coming at him with a knife held blade uppermost. Estrella sidestepped the lunge that would have opened his stomach and kicked into the back of his attacker's knees. While the man was still staggering, Estrella shoved him into his companion's way, and both collapsed in a tangle, scrabbling in the dust for the knives they dropped as they fell. "'Finish them off, Estrella!' Gar shouted as he scrambled to his feet. Estrella kneed one man in the ribs, keeling him over into the ditch. Gar lurched forward and stamped on the other's knife wrist. Two in the cart,' he grunted. "'They got by me.' 
Estrella took one stride, kicked the fallen knife out of the road, and ran towards Lindy. She was leaning calmly on her staff, its other end deep in the midriff of a man who was pleading for mercy. "'I've got this one,' said Lindy. "'Help Eva!' Estrella ran on to where Nora the horse was rearing and kicking at a man trying to drag Eva from the cart. "'Eva! Under the seat!' yelled Gar, still bent over the downed man. "'Estrella! Help me!' Eva screamed as she snatched up Gar's club. She swung the weapon, and her attacker staggered away from the cart, his hands across his face. With an incoherent shout, he turned and ran down the road they had just travelled. Another ran after him, drops of blood falling into the dust from his left arm. "'You'll live!' Gar called after him, and wiped his knife on his thigh. Estrella grabbed the horse's bridle to stop her kicking the front out of the cart, but she bucked, lifting him off his feet. While in the air, he glimpsed a movement to his left, let go, and dropped into a crouch. The last man had emerged from the ditch where he had found his knife, and he was charging a second time, the blade held waist-high. As the man lunged, Estrella dodged, seized his knife-wrist, pushed down, and the man's own forward motion sent him face downwards into the dust. The knife flew through the air, glinting in the sunlight. As the man tried to get up, Gar grabbed him by the back of his breeks, jerked him to his feet, and then propelled him, still off balance, past the cart, where Eva was still waving the club. "'Keep going, son,' said Gar. Estrella heard wheezing, painful breathing, turned and looked down. Lindy's staff held her man prone, his legs doubled up. Both of his hands were unsuccessfully trying to relieve the pressure on a point just below his breastbone. Gar bent down and held his knife so close to the man's eyes that he squinted. "'See, son, a girl flattened you, and now an old man is wondering whether to slit your ears, your nose, or your throat.' He paused as if to make up his mind. "'Now, tell me, before I reorganize your face, would you prefer to run away like your friends?' The man nodded his dust-caked head still unable to get enough air to speak. "'Right, then, Lindy, let him up.' She stepped back, her staff held crosswise, ready to strike. The man looked from one face to the other, panicked, and ran after his companions. Lindy grounded one end of her staff and leaned on it. Her face was flushed as she picked up her cap, which had fallen off in the fight, but her expression was calm as she tucked tendrils of blonde hair back out of her face. "'What happened to you, Gar?' she asked. "'I got an elbow in the gut,' he answered. "'Took my breath away. "'I caught a glimpse of you, too, as I went down. "'Saw your staff take out one knife very nicely, Lindy. "'Saw Eva battling at her black-eyed attacker. "'Missed your part of the action entirely, Estrella. "'Both times.' "'So did I,' said Lindy slowly. "'And I was watching.' I've never seen anybody move so fast. Fast? Estrella asked. I was just lucky to have the slow one to deal with, and then, stupidly, I didn't get rid of his knife properly. Lindy shook her head in disbelief. You were so quick, Estrella, said Eva, still standing in the cart. Gar stared thoughtfully at Estrella as he sheathed his knife and readjusted his shirt to cover it. You were all amazing, he said. Now, about that rest I was mentioning. I think we have some cider in the cart, don't we, Lindy? And Nora could do with a drink as well. 
They stayed in the shade by the stream to rest and refresh themselves for more than an hour. All four had been more shaken by the attack than they would admit, and they needed time to wind down from the excitement. Eva talked compulsively, describing how she had fought off her attacker, embellishing her story with a lively account of her own fears and hopes at the time. Lindy handed out mugs of cider, her gaze resting longer on Astrea than was necessary. Gar thoughtfully examined the inside of his mug. "'You have a knife, don't you? Couldn't you find it in time?' "'I didn't think of it,' said Estrella slowly. "'In the village, knives are for fish, not people.' While they were fighting off their attackers, Estrella had been completely calm. He'd felt invulnerable, moving as if he were stepping through a complicated but predictable dance. But now it was all over, delayed shock washed over him as he recognized that the consequences could have been fatal. He sat quietly, very much aware that the gar he had just seen threatening to cut a man's throat was not the jovial, itinerant painter of animals and people he had seemed until that moment. A thought preoccupied him as they went on their way again. This time Gar held the reins, Eva sat beside him, and Estrella and Lindy walked silently ahead, glancing warily from side to side as they passed through the last of the forest. Lindy watched Estrella closely as she scanned the road ahead. She could see that he was thinking uncomfortable thoughts, and she guessed that they concerned the fight. She had been impressed by Estrella's speed and agility, which was that of an experienced fighter. But when he had not pressed home his advantage, she knew that the black-haired, green-eyed man walking beside her was no ruthless killer, even if he had the skill and capacity to be one. This contradiction fascinated the logical side of her mind. She speculated about Estrella, wondering why he was so unlike anyone she'd ever met, even as she deliberately ignored the unexpected excitement she was feeling at being near to him. As he walked at her side, Estrella noticed that he had caught Lindy's attention. He guessed that she was curious about him, but her thoughtful glances were not like anything he had ever experienced. In the village, women and girls had scrutinized him, but only as a stranger and a person apart from them. Eva's attention had moved so swiftly from amazement to unexpected and confusing intimacy, to the flattering need to be protected, that he felt a responsibility for her, even though a voice inside him said, too much, too soon. In contrast, Lindy's interest was cool, unpossessive, almost distant. Lacking the context of family and shared upbringing that were always present in the village, he could only guess at what might explain her unusual character. He was surprised and impressed with the skill with which she had bested one of their attackers, and he liked her independence. Moreover, he enjoyed walking in step with her in ways that were new to him. There came a moment when their glances met. Estrella looked into her eyes and saw her mouth open just enough for him to glimpse the tips of her teeth. Lindy felt his grey-green eyes look into hers, and she saw more than the sharp features and black hair that marked him as extraordinary. She smiled at him, and in doing so, she lowered a carefully crafted mask of objectivity and reason. They both looked away, surprised by the intensity of the moment. Behind them, on the cart, 
Eva saw their swift interaction and clenched her teeth. Then he saw her compose her face into its most pleasing shape and favour him with a brilliant smile. For Estrella it was as if the day had started afresh. All his tiredness forgotten, he became more aware of his surroundings, in particular Lindy, walking at his side. At each gentle rise he observed that the land was more tended, with fences in better states of repair with each field they passed. The hay was higher in the fields than it would be so early in the year at the village, and there were yellow and red wildflowers in the fields that he would not have expected for a month. He was still thinking about how much more fertile this soft country was than the rocky land around the village, when the road rounded the edge of a small hill, and he caught his first glimpse of the castle. Astrea was immediately disappointed. He had been looking forward to seeing a wondrous building befitting a place of study and learning. He had imagined a school even more marvellous than he had read about in books. Instead, he saw a collection of big, heavy, crudely built brick buildings standing randomly in a large field. A spider's web of paths connected them all to the central building made of quarried stone, standing twice the height of all the others, with a domed roof unlike anything Estrella had ever seen. His eyes followed the broadest path back to a massively ugly gatehouse set into a red brick wall, which was topped by jagged shards of flint that flashed in the sunlight. Beyond the enclosed space to the west and south, low wooded hills rolled towards the horizon. A stream flowing from them caught the light where it widened into pools. The water became invisible behind the trees and then reappeared within the castle wall, where a few old and twisted trees marked its winding course among the buildings. On the near side of the wall was an untidy town, so unimpressive that he had overlooked the confused huddle of dusty houses and sheds, their tilted slate roofs and leaning walls supporting each other like drunken men shambling home arm in arm. Houses and hovels, barns and sheds, clustered with no apparent plan, under a haze of smoke from many chimneys, not one of them straight. Estrella scanned his companions' faces, guessing at their different moods, they stood looking down on their destination, thinking their own thoughts. "'Not a place where you'd expect to find highly-tuned artistic sensibilities,' remarked Gar. "'I'll be pounded flat if there's a man there who ever made anything for the simple joy of it.' Astrea glanced at Eva, and saw from her bright, expectant expression that she saw none of the ugliness. Her eyes shone at being near the place on which her hopes had been so fixed for so long that he guessed that she would have made her home in a dungeon. He almost envied her reaction. When he had heard of the castle he had imagined soaring towers, frowning battlements, and cloistered courtyards where the learneds exchanged wise words. What he saw were uninspiring buildings scattered in a huge field, with a clumsy brick wall separating one side of the random collection from a slatternly town. Estrella felt as depressed as Eva was excited. He glanced at Lindy, but if she had any thoughts or misgivings, she shared none of them. She clucked her tongue at the horse, and they all moved forward. The road bent first one way and then the other, as the little town at the bottom of the hill closed in around them. Sheds, Outhouses, homes, inns, and shops clustered together, 
served by a warren of narrow streets and alleys running in every direction, so that when Astraea looked back he could no longer see the low hills through which they had walked. Above the clutter of slanting roofs he caught occasional glimpses of the domed building, and when they passed some of the blind alleys to their right he could see the castle's wall rising more than twice a man's height. They turned a corner and found themselves in an overcrowded square, fed by many roads and streets. It was market day, and carts, riders, cattle, pigs, and dogs contested noisily for a share of what little space was left by men and women and children, each carrying every kind of burden. The street smelled of excited people, frightened animals, dung, cooking fires, dust, and as they passed each of many taverns, beer. When people and animals halted Garth's cart, Estrella stood and looked around. Immediately a woman with a baby on her hip jostled him, then when he backed away he was bumped on his other side by a man dangling a pair of squawking chickens from each hand. "'So many people,' Estrella muttered. He had never seen so many strange faces, each absorbed in his or her own concerns. He stepped aside from a butcher in a blood-stained apron carrying a tray of sausages. A huge horse with a farmer astride its broad back clopped through the crowd, threatening everyone's feet. A man with a barrow-load of potatoes would have hacked Estrella's shins if he had not moved back quickly onto a doorstep, his shoulders against the door. Temporarily out of danger, he caught his breath, overcame his momentary panic, and stood fascinated by all he saw. Here were two housewives, with waist-high children clinging to their skirts, carrying baskets of bread, vegetables, and a live trussed chicken. There was a man carrying a piglet upside down and squealing over his back. A farmer with two large panting dogs at his heels directed three young men who struggled under the weight of bulging sacks. A tinker clattered by, pushing a wheelbarrow, his pots and pans clanging like cracked bells. Beneath an overhanging window on the other side of the street a dark-haired man, cloaked to the ankles despite the heat, drew trinkets out of concealed pockets for an audience of young men and girls, occasionally selling a ribbon, a paper of pins, or a brooch. Several women, some of them young, and some trying to appear so, stood by the doors of taverns where the crowd was thickest. They wore bright dresses and tight, scoop-neck blouses, many of them with their waists nipped in and their busts thrust out by broad, brightly woven belts. Some people were already tipsy, while others waded thirstily through the crowd in search of their first ale of the day to wash away the dust of travel and bargaining. Estrella stood on the edge of this flood of people, studying faces intent on buying, selling, exchanging, and seizing their own pleasure. Nobody noticed him, and even those who jostled him treated him only as an obstacle. A little smile raised the corners of Astrea's mouth, as he became aware that here in this kaleidoscope of humanity, for once, he was unremarkable. He became entranced by the variety in the faces around him. Unlike the people of the village, whose faces were all similar in shape, the people around him were of all shapes and sizes. Some men had faces that were snub-nosed and scant of hair, even though they were of an age with the skippers at the village. Here a young man had an oval face and a curved nose, above the mouth thin-lipped as a knife-gash. 
There was another who had a head wider than it was tall, with dark hair that curled down across his forehead. There were two young girls whose faces were circles centred on snub noses, bracketed by tight chestnut ringlets. Their smock blouses and full skirts covered equally rounded bodies. They shook their heads primly as they first assessed and then ignored the slatternly clothes of the women at the tavern doors. When one of the girls saw that Astraea was looking at them, they whispered together and deliberately turned their backs, shaking their curly brown hair as it rippled over their shoulders. A pair of tall, lean men, with skin even darker than Astraea's, strode through the crowd, something in their manner causing people to move out of their way with sidelong glances. Each had a long, serviceable knife belted on top of his well-worn leather jacket. As they passed Gar's cart, Astraea's arm tingled under his bracelet. One of the men checked his stride, turned and glanced towards Astraea, who shrank back into the doorway. When his companion spoke, he shrugged, and they both walked on. In the doorway of the house across the road stood a man as round as an egg, double and treble chins ran down to his greasy shirt, and his feet were splayed apart at the ends of legs as thick as tree trunks. On the other side of the narrow street an aged woman scowled at Astraea. Her nose was only a finger's width from her chin, and her toothless cheeks were hollow. He could have drawn her to illustrate a fairy tale. She glowered at him with a wrinkled malevolence, made a quick gesture with a handful of knotted fingers, and then spat. A thick-set man in a knee-length blue coat bore down towards Astraea, making no attempt to swerve. Astraea glimpsed a white shirt above tight-fitting trousers before the man pushed him aside, shoving him back into the doorway, where his head knocked painfully against the wood. "'Watch your wretched self!' said the man over his shoulder as he urged his horse through the crowd. The door opened inwards behind him. He turned to look down into a pair of squinting, mud-brown eyes. Straggling grey hair framed a woman's scowling face. "'I'm sorry, but I was—' Australia began. The woman raised both her fists and pounded him in the chest. "'Get your ass out of my doorway, blackhead!' Astraea winced, more from the name than the blow. He stepped into the press of people once more, trying to see Gar's cart. Eva's wave caught his eye, and he made his way through the press, back to stand with Lindy beside Nora's head. The horse was as uncomfortable as Astraea. "'All right, Nora,' said Lindy softly into the horse's ear. "'We'll be out of here very soon, so just stay calm until we can get to moving again.' Nora bobbed her head as if agreeing. Astraea also nodded assent to what seemed like good advice, even though delivered a bit late. When he looked past the horse's big head, he saw Lindy looking at him. He shrugged. "'Avoid looking them in the eye,' she said. "'They don't want to know you.' Astraea thought back to the village, where nobody passed another person without some acknowledgment in the form of a word or, or at least a nod. He looked around again, avoiding eyes, but continuing to observe the people around him. Making their way through the crowd were groups of young men in threes and fours, all wearing dark green cloaks, like the one that had been presented to Astraea, which now lay rolled up in the back of the wagon. He guessed that they must be the castle's scholars. They all had a certain air about them that was distinctive as their cloaks, which they had turned back over their shoulders in the heat of the day. 
they elbowed their way arrogantly through the crowds, making sure that everyone noticed their apartness from the clamour of commerce. A tall scholar, whose brown hair curled to the shoulders of his gown, called out to Gar as he came near the wagon. "'Hey there, Uncle. Yeah, you on the painted cart. You have two girls with you, but only one boy. Which one warms your bed, Uncle?' "'Or do they all?' asked one of his companions, a heavy-set young man whose dark hair fell so far across his eyes that his nose and even his mouth were only intermittently visible. His black cap and broad shoulders might have confused him with the farmers, were it not for the disdain with which he pushed people out of the way to get a better look at Gar's wagon. "'Do you paint them in their clothes, or out of them?' asked a third, whose hair stood out from his hair like a wiry, carrot-coloured bush. Estrella bristled at the questions, but before he could attempt a reply, Gar turned the innuendo aside with a smile, imperturbably ignoring the blushes on both Estrella's and Eva's cheeks. He beckoned the three scholars closer. Lindy's face was expressionless, but Estrella noticed that she had shortened her grip on her staff, subtly changing it from walking stick to weapon. "'Lead us to a quiet tavern,' said Gar. Show me where to stable my horse without being robbed, and I'll answer all your questions over a mug, perhaps a jug. The tallest of the three smiled with an unexpected grace that took the sting out of his earlier jibes and made him look like the curly-headed boy he must have been when he was a few years younger. Follow us, uncle. We'll look after you. All of you. Estrella and Eva wondered why Gar should have thrown in with the loudest and most aggressive threesome they had seen. As the scholars pushed to the head of the painted wagon and started to clear away ahead of them, Gar clucked at the horse, and they followed the swaying green gowns into a narrow, twisting, and grimy alley. The press of people thinned, and they soon arrived at an inn only two or three houses from the castle wall. A faded sign depicting a jug and bottle swung above a low door that stood invitingly ajar. Gar negotiated with the burly, red-faced hostler, who lounged by the steps that led down to the taproom, and handed Lindy the reins. Estrella glanced a question at Lindy, wondering whether he should go with her. She raised one shoulder to him, pinched her nose in a quick gesture that anticipated what she might find in the stables, and waved him towards the inn. Deciding that she was probably more capable than he for the task, Estrella joined Eva, Gar, and the three scholars, as all but Eva ducked their heads under the low lintel before disappearing into the dim interior of the inn. Eva lagged back, shrank against Estrella, and seized his hand. He guessed that she had been brought up to believe that no decent woman would enter a tavern. Estrella was apprehensive, because he knew taverns only from stories he had read in Skarm's books, and his knowledge was both fragmentary and confused. Although he was as inexperienced as she, Estrella was more curious than apprehensive. When his eyes adjusted to the lamp-lit gloom, the tap-room of the jug-and-bottle was reassuringly quiet and orderly, reminding him of a snug cottage at the village, only considerably larger, and with a far richer assortment of smells. People sat at heavy tables on equally heavy benches, hunched over beer and food, Conversation was as muted as the light that filtered through bottle-green windows, or gleamed from lamps hung below smoke-blackened rafters. 
At the head of an empty table nearest the back wall was a chair with arms. Gar moved smoothly into the comfortable seat, just before the tall, curly-haired scholar took possession of the authority it represented. Estrella found a place at the table with Eva beside him, where he could look across at the leader of the three scholars. He had a full mouth, brown eyes, well-kept curly brown hair that marked him from first sight, and a small moustache, of which he was evidently proud, because his fingers strayed to his lip as he spoke, as if reassuring himself it was still there. "'I'm Damon,' he said, "'and these are Sandy and Enoch, Nock to his friends, and his enemies too. Who are you?' A small man appeared at Gar's shoulder before he could answer. He leered at Eva out of one brown eye, and Estrella saw that the other was pearly white. The good eye winked, and he twisted his face into a professional smile when Gar chinked money and ordered beer. As the taverner headed off to fill the order, Estrella saw him nod at a large man with a lumpy face and huge hands who stood by the door. The big enforcer of the inn's peace subsided into a chair, his services not necessary, as long as the guest's money held out. Gar caught Estrella's eye and nodded approval of his observation, and began introductions. "'These two are here to become learned. I've learned enough already. I'm a painter, as you may have guessed.' Estrella noticed that Gar concealed that only one of them would become a scholar. "'New to the castle, eh?' asked Nock, staring at Eva from under a thatch of ginger-red hair. "'What's your interest?' "'I want to be a healer,' said Eva. "'You're in luck,' said Damon, also looking her up and down with unabashed frankness. "'There's room for a few more women, so I hear. "'What about you, Estrella?' Estrella felt the need to assert himself. Astrea he corrected. Astrea, Damon mimicked accurately. He laughed. You'll be wanting to become a philosopher with your attention to names. I haven't decided yet, said Astrea, raising his voice to be heard over the sound of incoming guests behind him. Fingers dug painfully into the top of his shoulder, and a voice spoke above his head. Then decide now, while you've the chance to be schooled by an expert. Estrella twisted, stood, and turned in the same movement, shaking off the hand that had grabbed him. He was in a space among the tables, facing three young men, with scholars' cloaks turned back over their shoulders. The foremost was tall, broad-shouldered, and powerful. Estrella looked into a face that might have been handsome had its lips not been set in a taunting smile. He stepped forward, and when Estrella did not retreat, snatched the knife from Estrella's belt and threw it into the corner. Slowly and deliberately he drew his own long knife from a sheath on his belt. "'Where are you from, new boy?' The other two started to close in on their victim. Time slowed for Estrella. A part of his mind decided that he had been abandoned, this time by Gar, Lindy, and Eva. Whatever they were doing, he had to solve his problem on his own. At the leader's peremptory gesture, his companions grabbed Estrella from both sides. These were not village fishermen's sons, but accomplished tavern brawlers. They caught at clothes first, and then shifted their grasp to Estrella's arms and neck. Recognizing that struggling was futile, he stood still and waited for an opportunity. The leader crouched, brought up his knife, and sliced air in front of Estrella's face. Estrella knew nothing of knife-fighting, but he refused to be mesmerized by the blade glittering in front of his face. 
He stared back through the arcing steel. The taunting continued, interspersed with pulling and shaking by the two who held him. Something behind Astraea fell with a crash, followed by a series of thuds. When the grip on his right wrist relaxed momentarily, Astraea kicked into his captor's armpit, and when the man let go with an oath, he threw himself shoulder-first towards the floor, breaking the grip on his other arm in time to lessen his fall. He rolled and twisted, but before he could get to his feet, he glanced up just in time to see the hand with the knife above him. He kicked up at the man's wrist, his boot connected, and the knife jangled to the stone floor at his feet. Astraea snatched it up, as its owner was suddenly shoved out of the way by the tavern's enforcer, along with two more men of the same size and determination. Astraea stood his ground, knife in hand. Half the lamps had gone out, and the others swung crazily above tables and benches overturned by the other drinkers, when they had hastily made room for the fighters. His original assailants were nowhere to be seen in the gloomy tap-room, but out of the corner of his eye he saw a side door open and close. Before he could take any further notice, a short club swung expertly, and Estrella was empty-handed, numb from forearm to fingertips. Two enforcers closed in, each as strong as all three of the young scholars Estrella had just faced. He was grabbed and frog-marched out of the tavern by hands hard as the heel of a boot. Estrella's nightmare continued outside. One arm was twisted behind his back, and he was pushed along the alley towards the thoroughfare, into the marketplace that they had skirted on their way into the town. Soon he was in the thick of townspeople, travellers, farmers, and scholars, through which his burly captors forced away. Some of the onlookers shouted obscenities as his captors marched him past. With casually efficient brutality, they shoved him towards a wooden platform at the centre of the square. Every step he took, his captor wrenched his arm higher, Every time he stumbled, the other kicked him in the muscles of his calves. A few staggering steps up a flight of wooden stairs, and Estrella stood on a platform shoulder-height above the crowd. A man with a bulbous nose sat in a massive wooden throne-like chair. A sweat-stained broad-brimmed hat was pushed back on his head, revealing his receding hairline, from which runnels of sweat ran down to his collar. Around his neck was a silver chain that descended to a gold medallion the size of a small plate, which rested on the straining buttons of a red shirt stretched over a stomach thickened by middle age and indulgence. Estrella was given another push that brought him to his knees, close enough to smell the man's sour sweat. He looked up into two pale blue eyes, narrowed to wrinkled slits against the sunlight. "'Caught him knife-fighting, your eminence!' said the largest of Estrella's captors, and produced the knife. "'Took this seer off of him.' He handed the long knife to the man in the chair, who tested its edge with a cautious thumb. He sucked in his cheeks, blew them out again, and lowered his gaze to Estrella. "'Your name?' he demanded. Estrella looked from one face to another. He was alone, surrounded by people in whose eyes was only curiosity about what would happen next. He was as helpless as an animal about to be slaughtered. "'Astrea,' he replied, hearing hopelessness in his own voice. "'Well, whatever you said your name was, these men have you dead to rights. You're a scholar? Where's your cloak?' Astrea shook his head. "'Of course you are,' 
You deny it? Not yet, sir. I'm supposed to become a scholar. That's why I was sent here. Ah, another reluctant student. The man pursed his lips together. And since not yet a scholar, entirely under my jurisdiction. You are the worst kind, you enforced learners. You terrorize my town, waste the time of the learners who try to instruct you, and fail to return to your miserable little hamlets, even if you do finish your studies. I can think of no reason why you should not become an example to others, since you are clearly no use for anything else. Do you know what the penalty is for fighting with a weapon such as this? Astrea shook his head, and tried to explain that the knife was not his. As soon as he made a sound, one of his captors pushed him down until his face was almost on the fat man's dusty boots. The punishment, my young friend, is not pleasant at all. First I will have you beaten, and then I shall have you locked up until it pleases me to have you run out of town by whichever of these fine, if somewhat boisterous people, wish to pursue you. Meantime, that is, until next market-day, you will be doing constructive work to make good the expense to which you have put us. The beating can take place now. The man licked his lips and settled his hands on the central mound of his stomach below the medallion. Estrella felt leather straps curl and tighten, first around one and then the other wrist. Then the two men who grasped Estrella's arms each went down on one knee, pulling his arms apart and holding him doubled over. His fingers started to throb as the leather straps cut off the flow of blood to his hands. The third man slit the back of his shirt from hem to neck and tugged the two sections apart, exposing his back and shoulders. Estrella bit his lip. Whatever happened, he would not cry out. He held his breath and closed his eyes. Instead of a blow, a confused shouting came from behind him, which resolved itself into Gar's voice, echoed by at least three others. "'Your eminence!' shouted Gar from the edge of the platform. "'Your estimable justice is misguided by circumstances that are no fault of yours or your watchman.' "'Who are these importunate people?' demanded the man, rising from his chair. "'I know none of them to be my townspeople.' "'Get on with the whipping!' came a hoarse shout. Another voice behind him added to Estrella's confusion. "'I'm one of your townsmen, your eminence. I saw the whole thing. This young lad was set upon, defended himself bare-handed, and disarmed the man who attacked him. He was standing, innocent, and threatening nobody when the watch arrived.' "'Is that Robert the Taverner? You're making long speeches, Bob, and I can't hear you properly. Come up here, when I can see you.' He waved to delay the whipping, and the two men holding Astrea relaxed somewhat. He no longer felt that his arms were being pulled out of their sockets, but the straps on his wrists still held him from twisting away. He turned his head and saw the wall-eyed innkeeper climbing the steps onto the platform. The fat mare settled back in his chair and raised a finger to deflect the sweat trickling through his thin eyebrows into his eyes. When Astrea looked under his left arm, he saw the heads of Gar, Damon, Sandy, and Nock looking over the edge of the platform. "'Tell it to me again, Robert. Do you allege that this young ruffian is innocent?' "'Aye, and the one that jumped him goes free,' 
See him for yourself at the edge of the crowd. Everyone within earshot turned in time to see the scholar who had held the knife on Astraea turn his back and hurry down an alley, his green cloak flaring behind him. Gar's voice was loud, confident, and also deferential. You see, sir, I, I mean your eminence, the guilty are escaping at this moment. But you have the weapon, and that speaks for itself. What is this nonsense? A knife can't speak. If it please you, your eminence, said Gar, as he clambered onto the platform without bothering to use the steps, you know, of course, that the knife given you by the watch is so large that it can only be carried in a hand or in a sheath. Now, would you be so merciful as to ask your watchmen if they took anything from this young lad that's big enough to hold this, this small sword? Well, the two men holding Astraea shook their heads. Repetitions, questions, and discussions rippled through the crowd. A nice point, whoever you are. I am amused by your ingenious defense. Clearly the knife does not belong to our black-haired friend here, and Robert the Tavernous story rings true. Release the prisoner. Gar shepherded Astraea off the platform in a daze, amazed that he had been freed. As Gar guided him down the steps into the crowd, the mayor stood up and launched into a speech in a loud, carrying voice. He commended the watch, the innkeeper, Estrella, Gar, and everyone who stood around. He began a diatribe against all knife-fighters, particularly the one who had been chased from the marketplace. The crowd responded by cheering and clapping at appropriate moments, their ugly mood turned inside out. Hands reached out to pat Estrella's shoulders or shake his hand, as Gar elbowed through the crowd. Estrella barely had the presence of mind to clasp his torn shirt to his chest to conceal his money pouch. Gar pushed Estrella towards Damon, Sandy, and Nock, who formed a wedge around the two of them, and thrust a way back to the jug and bottle, which was now filled with curious and thirsty folk. Gar picked a fresh table, this one in a corner where they could avoid attention. His fringed head gleamed under the light of a hanging lamp as he again claimed the armchair, this time with no competition. Damon, Nock, and Sandy took the outside bench, while Estrella leaned gratefully against the wall at his back. They were no sooner sitting than Lindy and Eva appeared through a side door. Eva carried one of Gar's less painty shirts. Lindy held her staff in one hand, and his father's knife in the other. At that moment jugs of ale thumped onto the table, and all three young men began talking at once. As drinks were poured, Estrella ruefully stripped off his yellow shirt, now in two pieces. In the dimly lit tavern he could see the stone in his bracelet glowing through gaps in the string. Seeing that Gar and Lindy had also noticed, Estrella pulled on the fresh shirt as quickly as he could, grateful that his left arm was away from Damon, Sandy, and Nock. Both Gar and Lindy sensed his concern and looked away. Lindy, in silence, Gar by drawing attention to himself. Estrella, you are probably wondering why we didn't help you when those peculiarly unpleasant people grabbed you. Well, we were being forcibly restrained by some of their friends who I don't think you saw either then or later. We didn't see them any too well ourselves, because Damon, Nock, Sandy, and I were being held by the hair— which in my case is as painful as it is difficult to locate. 
He ruffled his white fringe as he spoke. Eva whispered, It was horrible, in Astraea's ear. Sandy demonstrated on Nock, who objected, exactly how he had been held. Damon explained in detail precisely what he would have done had he been able. Gar silenced them all by pounding his tankard on the table, and when he had their attention again, refilling it from an earthenware pitcher. We might all still be watching Astrea get ventilated, if it weren't for the subject of my toast. I give you our rescuer, Lindy. He raised his mug and tossed back a healthy swig. Other mugs waved in the air and were drunk with enthusiasm. Lindy nodded her head in appreciation and gave a little shrug, as if to say she had really done very little. "'You were probably a bit too involved in what we were doing, Estrella, but if you heard a couple of thuds, it was Lindy's staff cracking heads.' Estrella stared, wondering why there were no corpses on the floor. That must have been the sound that gave him a momentary advantage. The struggle came back to him, and his heart pounded as if he faced the waving knife a second time. It was not fear, but an onrush of reaction to his time-bending readiness during the fight. Now that action was out of the question, his body shuddered, and he panted in quick, shallow breaths. Seeing his eyes lose focus and his head droop, Lindy put her hand on his arm. "'Breathe deeply, Estrella,' she murmured. "'Know that you did well.' Estrella took the breaths she commanded and felt his pulse slow and steady. "'That was quick,' Lindy murmured, as Estrella once more took an active interest in what was going on. "'After that,' said Gar, "'our friends Damon, Sandy, and Enoch acquitted themselves handsomely.' Of five who came, only Carl, the one with the knife, was able to leave on his own. Foolishly, he then went to the marketplace and had to take to his toes. "'You should have seen Gar,' said Eva eagerly. "'He had a mug of beer in one man's face and his elbows in the rib of another before he was even standing up.' "'Experience born of a misspent youth,' said Gar, fluffing his hair over his ears. I begin to understand how Enoch's name got shortened to Nock. You have a skilful way with your fists. Nock grinned, showing a gap between his front teeth that could well have been the result of learning his craft. Where did you learn to fight? Damon asked Estrella. I wrestled at the village, uh, where I come from, said Estrella. Damon fingered his moustache, looking at Estrella thoughtfully. Why didn't you follow through? he asked. You had, Carl, and you stood there with the knife held all wrong. I couldn't believe you were the same person who had taken it away from him so fast nobody saw you do it. And he's good with a blade, or he wouldn't have the following he does. How did you break their holds? And how did you get to the knife without getting cut to shreds? Estrella shrugged. He had never tried to explain his reticence about attacking anyone. Indeed, he did not know the answer himself. Damon leaned towards him, his brown eyes earnest. "'Listen, Estrella, you show me that trick, and I'll teach you how to hold a knife as if you meant to do more than slice a loaf of bread.' "'You could do a lot worse, Estrella,' said Gar softly. Estrella's protest that he had no secret was forestalled by the arrival of a fresh jug of ale, supplied by Robert the Taverner, as his tribute to the young man who had outmaneuvered Carl, the celebrated knife-fighter. The innkeeper presented the drinks with a flourish, making sure his generosity was noticed by all those crowded into his taproom. 
"'It was good of the innkeeper to speak on my behalf,' said Estrella. Damon snorted. <laughs> "'It had good results,' he said. "'But don't give Bob the swab any marks for virtue. Gar paid him a handful of money, and I told him I'd get the learneds to bar his tavern if he didn't support you. And now this place is filled with thirsty people come to take a look at you, Estrella, and that's more than it or he deserves. Fear and greed with the source of his performance in the square, not a love of justice. Estrella's eyes widened. Oh, dear, an innocent, said Gar in his astonishment. You have a lot of disappointment ahead of you. I'm not disappointed in anyone around this table, said Estrella firmly. It will happen, none the less, said Gar. Disappointment, that is. With which warning in mind, I've got news that will take some sorting out. Damon here is an expert on the rules by which the castle functions. Break enough of them, and you get to learn them, Damon interjected. And he tells me that it is possible to get a position as a scholar if you're a woman, but there's only one person taken from each community. Eva's face rose and fell. Estrella, you've got the purse and paper that says you're the one they chose, she began. Estrella cut her off. Eva, you go. It's what you've always wanted. Gar's face blended wry amusement with a judicial stare. I'm impressed with your generous natures, both of you, but I haven't explained that there really isn't a choice to be made. Eva's the one, and that's that. It seems that the castle expects all its new scholars to be beyond reproach, whatever they might do later. Nobody can be a scholar if he's ever been publicly accused of a crime. That's right, isn't it, Damon? Damon nodded and spread his hands expressively. It's ridiculous, of course, he said. It might be understandable, if not particularly fair, if it said convicted of a crime, but the rule says publicly accused, and there aren't many more public places than the town square on a market day. Carl knew that, Estrella. He wasn't interested in carving you up, although he would have done so cheerfully. He only had to get you accused, and he would enjoy his idea of fun. He's done it to several would-be scholars. "'Why doesn't someone stop him?' Lindy asked. "'Because, as a scholar, he's immune to any discipline except from the learneds. Somehow he always manages to get away with it because of some technicality or another, and he even gets praised for his knowledge of the weasel words in the rules that get him off.' "'That is neither logical nor just,' said Lindy firmly. Damon, Sandy, and Nock stared at her. Estrella and Gar exchanged glances, amused by the trio trying to reconcile what they'd seen and heard with their preconceptions about women. Estrella was briefly aware that Eva was oblivious to everyone in her delight that she would get her fondest wish. "'Where are the bodies, Lindy?' asked Gar. "'Carl's following never made it to the marketplace. "'Resting peacefully in the stable midden, unless they've woken up and walked away,' said Lindy evenly. "'Well done.' "'Very tidy,' said Gar. The three scholars continued to stare incredulously at Lindy, who drank her ale with the air of one who knew she deserved it. Estrella fell silent. Once again decisions were being made for him. He was about to sink into gloomy contemplation when he saw Gar and Lindy sitting side by side, smiling at him as if sharing a secret. Gar's smile was not the public display he flashed on those he wished to impress— but a gentler version that drew lines around his mouth and tilted his eyebrows. 
Beside him, Lindy's mouth became generous, and her blue eyes caught the lamplight. Estrella warmed to both of them. They had saved him, fought for him, spent money for him, and he had not even thanked them. Poised between an uncertain past and no future he could discern, Estrella suddenly felt favoured by life. He smiled back, took a swig of beer, and grinned around the table. Here, he was certain, there was no treachery. "'Estrella, how can you be so happy?' asked Eva. "'You're not going to the castle.' Estrella took another mouthful of beer, conscious that they were all waiting to hear what he would say. "'I didn't choose to become a scholar. It was wished on me whether I wanted it or not. Now, whether I want it or not, it's being taken away. I'm back where I started, except that the next choice will be mine.' "'But, Estrella, you can read.' "'You're suited to study.' "'Eva, did you say he can read?' asked Damon. Eva nodded, and when Damon looked at Estrella, he nodded as well. "'Oh, that's incredible,' said Damon. "'None of the poor scholars can read. That's why the castle only trains them to do something more or less useful before sending them back to their villages.' "'You can read, then?' asked Eva, bridling at being called a poor scholar. "'Quite a bit,' said Damon airily. But then I'm not a poor scholar. Besides, most of what we do in philosophy is through discussion, the ancient tradition, you know. Estrella did not know, but instead of asking the question Damon wanted to answer, he asked one of his own. Does the castle have many books? Thousands and th thousands, said Sandy around a hiccup. Most of them are in the Great Hall. That's what you're supposed to fancy up, isn't it? "'Damon asked Gar. "'Say paint,' said Gar with dignity. "'I'm not the man who whitewashes the walls "'or carves little knobs on the rafter ends.' "'Paint, then,' said Damon, "'sketching a deferential gesture "'that almost sent Sandy's ale into his lap. "'But anyway, you'll see the books when you go in. "'I bet some of them haven't been touched in a lifetime.' "'I would have thought that books would be "'at the centre of a learned's life,' said Lindy. "'Most of them don't bother much with books,' said Nock, his voice slurred. "'They teach what they've learned. "'Of course, now and then, one of them writes something, but—' "'My learned's writing a book,' said Sandy, "'whose words flowed from beneath his dangling hair as quickly as Nock's had been slow. "'He's talked about it many times. "'It's something to do with filling up the gap left when a book was destroyed by an accident about seventy years ago. "'He's been studying the books on either side of it, and he's working out what the missing one must have been.' "'I'd like to see if some of the books say anything about before,' began Estrella, "'and then stopped as he discovered that he had to shape his words with care.' Gar interrupted him by clearing his throat after a prodigious swig of ale. "'Estrella, I have a proposition to put to you, and I make it in front of witnesses, all of whom I conjure with strong oaths to absolute secrecy. You may not be able to enter the castle as a scholar, but how would you like to go there as a painter's assistant?' The learned's promised me food and lodging for two helpers, and their offer still stands to be taken up by me to-morrow morning.' I think they expected me to show up with a party of eight or ten, you see, so they stipulated two, not knowing at the time, that there was only Lindy and me. Are you following me? What do you say, Estrella? Will you join up with us? Do you suppose I could fool them into thinking me a painter's helper? asked Estrella. 
"'Fool them?' echoed Gar with a snort. "'You could fool me. You're a painter, my lad. Not that there aren't a few things I can show you, mark you. You'll teach me? You'll learn. Then I accept.' Estrella half rose in his seat as he reached for Gar's hand and shook it warmly. Most of Damon's ale poured into his lap, and the rest flowed across the table so that there was only a moment's touch between Estrella's and Lindy's fingers, as everyone grabbed their beer and tried to remain dry. "'I hope you won't be this clumsy around the paint pots,' said Damon as he wrung out his sleeve and waved at the taverner for more ale. "'You don't drive much of a bargain,' said Gar. "'I can see that there are a lot of other things I have to teach you. Now tell me, Estrella, what are you going to make out of this deal?' "'I'll have what I can earn from you, and my board and lodging from the castle,' said Estrella. "'Won't I?' "'Of course you will. But you'll be associating with a villainous, black-haired, curly-bearded, green-eyed, supernaturally powerful warlock,' Gar completed. "'So, until people forget about today's little scene in the marketplace, you'll wear a hat over your black hair and shave off that beard.' "'All right. I mean, if you insist.' especially because you saved me this afternoon. Perhaps there's some way I can pay you back for the money you spent today on me. I'd give it to you now, but I don't have any. I mean, I have this money they gave me at Teenmouth, but Eva's going to need it for, oh, whatever she needs it for. Fees, food, lodging in the castle, said Damon. I thought you said poor scholars. She is or will be a poor scholar unless Teenmouth stumped up the kind of money my stepfather spent to get me out of his house. Estrella looked at Damon for a moment, sensing a story behind his words, then somewhat cloudily he returned to his first thought. Here, Eva, you take the money. He reached into his shirt and ducked his head under the leather strap that held the money bag. Her eyes wide, Eva took it from his outstretched hand. Gar rolled his eyes upward and spoke pleadingly to himself. What can you do with innocence like that? Take care of it, teach it, let it be, said Lindy, most of which you're doing. Gar looked at her sharply. You're not supposed to hear me when I talk to myself, young lady, much less understand the wise words of the ancient man with whom you are journeying. Lindy allowed one eyebrow to rise, keeping her face otherwise expressionless. Gar's chin fell. I'll be pounded flat. In more than a year we've been together, you've never done that. You haven't been watching, said Lindy. Gar let himself slip down in his chair as his head came to the level of his mug. He shrugged elaborately. I am pounded flat, he said to her, and then straightened up. But not for long. Food, drink, merriment. Gar ordered. Bread, cheese, and cold meats came and were soon consumed. Eating steadied them, and conversation began again. Estrella looked around the table, freezing each face in his memory. He watched Gar and Damon competing to tell the most improbable story, encouraging each other to greater and greater liberties with the truth, Nock and Sandy laughing and applauding vigorously. Eva sat in an oblivious cocoon of satisfaction. Nock's gap-toothed grin, Sandy's explosion of red hair, Damon's index finger caressing his moustache, Gar's leathery brown face with its fringe of white hair, Eva's half-smile, all of these he memorized, so that he could draw them later. When Estrella looked at Lindy, her face was subtly animated, 
as if words ran through her mind too quickly to be spoken. He wondered at first if it was a trick of the light, or his own wondering attention. Then he saw her glance at Gar, as he concluded the story, and affection, concern, exasperation, and amusement moved across her face like gentle wind across water. Estrella was sure that he had understood the expressive sequence, and he was also certain that there was no way he could ever draw what he had seen. Each minute change in Lindy's face had been clear and meaningful, and yet she remained enigmatically silent. "'If you get inside, when you get in, I'll find you, and we'll arrange the time when you can show me how you ducked out of that hold,' said Damon to Estrella, and then turned away to speak to Eva. Estrella was suddenly conscious that it had been some time since he had been attending to what people were saying. Eva was leaning towards Damon, listening, but there were too many other conversations going on for him to hear what they were saying. Then Damon stood up and announced that the three scholars were about to return to the castle over the wall, since the gates were long shut. Gar was on the other side of the room, bargaining earnestly with the innkeeper. He wove his way back amongst empty chairs and tables to their alcove. "'If you young people care to spend the night under a taproom table, you may. But I'm older and much too wise to repeat that dispiriting experience.' After wishing Damon, Sandy, and Nock good night, Gar led the three young people to the rooms he had engaged. Estrella found that he had to take unusual precautions against bumping into furniture as they made their way across the taproom. Eva, who had sipped cautiously all night, looked only tired. Lindy appeared unaffected, despite having matched the men mug for mug. Gar took the lead with a stub of a candle in his hand, and they climbed a narrow staircase that led to a narrower passage, in which Gar's flickering light was almost useless to Estrella, who brought up the rear. Gar indicated the door of one tiny room for the two young women, and fumbled with the handle of the door next to it. Eva lingered for a moment after Lindy and Gar had both gone through their respective doors. "'Thank you so much,' said Eva. "'I hope you're not going to be too disappointed at not being a scholar.' Estrella searched for words to help Eva understand his satisfaction with the way things had worked out. In the long pause, Eva felt for Estrella in the darkness, pulled his face down and kissed him on the forehead, clearly enjoying being generous to the underprivileged. Before he could react or even wonder, she was gone, leaving him to find his way into his room by feel. Inside, the nub of the candle flickered on the floor between two pallets, on one of which Gar was already snoring. Estrella shook his head. The day had held too much to be ordered into any coherent pattern of meaning, especially after all the ale he had consumed. He sat down and unlaced his boots slowly, thinking that some new part of his life was opening up before him, one in which he might be able to take hold of his own destiny. With one boot half off, he decided he had to relieve himself before sleeping. The candle stub dripped wax on his hand, and his bootlaces flapping, he fumbled out the door along the passageway, down the stair, and outside to the outhouse. On his way back from the evil-smelling Jake's he met another figure, candle shielded, making its way towards him across the tavern-yard. As they were about to pass, Estrella saw it was Lindy. She was grumbling to herself under her breath about the grubby tavern, the distance to the smelly outhouse, and the guttering candle in her hand. 
Her unusual wordiness was Estrella's first clue that she, too, had drunk more ale than she had planned. "'Good night, Lindy,' he said. "'Thanks for all you've done.' "'You deserve better than this, Estrella,' she answered. "'And so do I.' Estrella continued back to his room, wondering at her remark. Companionship and ale had made him optimistic, and there seemed so much for him to anticipate that it was strange that she should be offering him something akin to sympathy, so entirely unlike Eva's patronizing. Puzzled, he pulled off his boots and sank onto the pallet. He rolled over and saw a faint light from his bracelet gleaming through the white fabric of his shirt. Turning back his sleeve and separating the woven string, he studied the green stone curiously, wondering why he was not made uncomfortable by its strange behavior. As he watched, the stone gradually dimmed, until he asked himself whether it had ever been so bright. He scratched vigorously, suddenly aware that Gar and he were not alone in their beds. Before he could either wish for better or regret what he had left behind, sleep claimed him. You have been listening to the Estrella Trilogy, Book One, The Voyage South, written and read by Seymour Hamilton. All three books are available in electronic and paper formats from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Chapters. Visit astreatrilogy.com for more about Astrea's world. This audio version is licensed under the United States Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0.